everyone, welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 3rd of February with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I caught up with a regular guest in the podcast, Andrew Wallace, CEO of anti-slavery NGO Unseen. We talked about the importance of ongoing scrutiny of human rights and migration regulation, and some of the good examples of multi-stakeholder collaboration that have successfully tackled the big human migration challenges. Andrew will be taking part in Innovation Forum's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade event in London on the 29th and 30th of March. And earlier this week, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop to find out how the event is coming together. That's all to come. First, though, it's time for some sustainable business news. A report from Conservation International and the We Mean Business Coalition suggests that companies are keen to use every tool available to drive towards their climate targets. Of the over 500 sustainability managers surveyed at global companies and organisations in the US, UK and Europe, the vast majority, 92%, view long-term carbonisation as a priority and 89% say that responsible use of carbon credits is important. Just over half say that carbon credits allow for immediate climate action alongside the work necessary to directly reduce emissions in the long term. The verification and certification processes for carbon credits have come under some criticism recently, with The Guardian and Desite suggesting that the vast majority of certified credits from the biggest certifier, Vera, do not represent genuine carbon reductions. Vera and other sporting organisations have strongly disputed the claims and the veracity of the research behind them. In any case, the voluntary carbon markets have provided billions of dollars to be directed to the vital work of preserving forests while developing economic opportunities for indigenous communities dependent on them. Do look out for an Innovation Forum webinar coming up in a few weeks where we'll take a balanced look at the challenges in an extremely complex area and examine what the carbon markets and certification schemes can do better. Using artificial intelligence modelling, researchers at Stanford and Colorado State Universities have found that the planet is on the verge of critical climate thresholds, with 1.5 Celsius of warming over pre-industrial levels set to be reached within the next decade. By the middle of the century, there is a 50% chance of reaching 2 Celsius of warming, which has been identified by scientists as a critical tipping point. The Stanford and Colorado State research highlights the evident impact of the 1 Celsius of warming that's already happened, with increasing summer droughts and more intense weather systems around the world. The model found that there is a near 70% chance that the 2 Celsius threshold of warming will be crossed between 2044 and 2065, even if there is a significant decline in emissions. This does seem significant, as so far mid-century net zero targets have been thought to give a chance of holding warming at 1.5 Celsius. The 1.5 Celsius and 2 Celsius warming pathways are of course the points identified by the Paris Climate Agreement signed by two new countries at the Climate COP20 meeting in 2015. The UK government has announced more detail of the Payments for Farmers scheme that will replace the EU's common agricultural policy. Rather than simply being paid for the amount of land farmed, funding from the new UK scheme will be paid out for 280 nature-positive measures to help more environmentally less damaging food production. The environmental land management schemes consist of three different types of payment. Sustainable farming incentives will provide funds to help farmers focus on soil health and reducing fertilisers and insecticides. The landscape recovery scheme will support large-scale rewilding projects and the Countryside Stewardship Plus scheme will reward farmers for action that promotes climate change adaptation and helping nature. In total, the schemes are expected to provide around £2.4 billion of funding. A new report from e-commerce platform Shopify suggests that, despite economic challenges, consumers are still making purchasing choices based on sustainability issues. Consumers are increasingly aware of the impact of their choices and are willing to spend more on lower impact products. Younger consumers are leading the way, with 61% of millennials claiming to make sustainable choices when shopping. Shopify also polled companies, finding that a majority believe there is a positive impact on performance by implementing the measures that lessen impacts, and concluding that this is an indication that a focus on sustainability is here to stay. 
The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing our 2023 spring conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food and business climate action on Scope 3 emissions. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at best rates. This year's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade event will be in London on the 29th and 30th of March. To find out how the event is coming together, I caught up this week with my colleague Emily Heslop. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me back. So, Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference coming up on the 29th and 30th of March in London. Remind us, what's this year's format and who's the event for? This year, the event is going to be fully in person and it's going to be all main stage plenary sessions. Attendees will basically be involved in all of the sessions that we'll be running throughout the two days. Throughout the forum, we'll be banning PowerPoint corporate presentations and we're going to have a variety of different session lengths and formats to make sure it's really engaging across the two days. There's also a great number of opportunities for networking that are built into the agenda for delegates to make sure they speak to everyone they want to at the conference. And in terms of who it's for, it's anyone who's working within the responsible sourcing, human rights, procurement, ethical trade space. And we've got a large number of different stakeholders who are joining, including corporates, NGOs, suppliers, government bodies, and many, many more. Are there any issues emerging as the conferences come together? Any particular issues that you found of interest? There's been four key issues that have emerged as we've been putting the conference together. The first one is looking human rights due diligence. We'll be really looking at how business must adapt to comply with this emerging legislation we've seen over the past year. The second one is supplier engagement and training. So we're going to really be looking in detail at how to integrate worker voice into decision making and the best approaches to empower suppliers as well. The third one is responsible sourcing, really looking at the realities of on the ground implementing those responsible sourcing frameworks and strategies with the different stakeholders in your supply chain. And then finally, we're going to be looking at integrating human rights within your environmental strategy. So looking at the intersection of social with environmental strategy. So have you added any new sessions to the agenda recently? Based on the last issue I mentioned, we've seen more and more organisations talking about how they're trying to align their social programmes with their environmental strategies, goals, net zero targets, etc. So on the last day of the conference, we'll be running a session that's going to be exploring what does a just transition look like in practice and how to actually integrate human rights within your net zero strategy. The concept of a just transition is one that's really one that uh, we're seeing an awful lot of talk about at the moment. What new panellists have you had recently? What new faces and new companies coming along? Over the last few weeks, we've had a great number of panellists join and sign up to the conference. For example, we've had Pauline Potter, the procurement director from Every, Dear Bergeret, the director of social sustainability and SSCI at the Consumer Goods Forum, Julie Corner, the global director of sustainability at Fife's, We've had Oxfam, Open Supply Hub and a number of others. You can actually see the full list of speakers on the conference website as well to see any updates over the next few weeks. So, Emily, how can our listeners get involved? There's still time to register for the forum itself. If you go to the conference website, you can actually save £200 on the price of the ticket if you register before Friday the 10th of February. And as always, if anyone is interested in group booking discounts, they can email me directly at emily.heslop at innovationforum.co.uk. Equally, if anyone is also interested in sponsoring the event, we do have a handful of speaking spaces remaining. So they can contact my colleague, Gabriella Quison, whose email is actually on the conference website and she can share more information with you. But going to have to move quickly on that one because we're slowly, quickly running out of space at the conference itself. 
Indeed, that's a very good point. There's not a lot of space left if you want to get involved, listeners, as, as a sponsor. Still, there are tickets available. And don't forget, now's a good time to buy your delegate passes to secure your place for the conference. Save £200 if you register by Friday the 10th of February. Emily, looking forward to it. It'll come up very quickly. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, thanks for having me in. Recently, I was pleased to catch up with Andrew Wallace, CEO of Unseen. We talked about the importance of human rights watchdogs and how to ensure that hard-won battles to protect migrant workers and other vulnerable groups are not lost, either as a result of unintended consequences or simply bad government. We're going to talk a little bit about the importance of scrutiny and collaboration around protecting migrant workers. The UK Home Secretary has been criticised for scrapping the process of appointing a new UK independent anti-slavery commissioner, despite it having gone on for the best part of a year. So what's the background to this and why has the appointment process been halted? The first thing to say is actually the role was created and is enshrined in law and the role is accountable and reports to Parliament annually in terms of how is the UK doing in response to and tackling modern slavery and within our context, forced labour? Currently, the government is in breach of the law, hence why the Lib Dems have brought forward a law. It's not going to get passed, but it's drawing light to the issue in terms of saying actually the role should never be vacant for more than three months. Why is that important? The process has been running since April 22. And we've just had this announcement that you know, they've run the process and we've decided not to appoint anyone. So we're going to run the process again, and yet we still haven't even got the ad up for it. And we know the process takes at least six, if not eight months. The UK will have been without a commissioner for 18 months, two years. And when that role is about scrutinising not just how government is dealing with the issue, but also businesses and law enforcement and NGOs, etc., and reporting on developments, and if you're giving a scorecard in terms of the response, not having that is a huge gap. And for parliamentarians, it's a big gap because they're not getting that independent report year by year in terms of this is how we're doing. As to why, I think it is about this issue of scrutiny and independent scrutiny, which this government seems not particularly keen on having. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Why do we still need to have watchdogs like the Anti-Slavery Commissioner? I think if you look across the UK at the moment, there are a number of key independent commissioner type roles that haven't been replaced. So one would be the Victims Commissioner, obviously the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner, the Ethics Commissioner. And the way that these roles are constructed is to have some independence from government to say, how's business? Not just in terms of government, but across all of those sectors of society that are impacted or that feed into what those roles are reporting on. And I think that's important in order to ensure that we've got a balanced response and we've got a truthful response to what is really going on. That part of the role of the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner, enshrined in law, so that post should be there fulfilled, is to look at how is the policing response to modern slavery? So when we have a crime, is it being investigated properly? Are victims being taken care of? How is the care of victims taking place? You know, are we seeing an increasing level of prosecutions? Are we seeing fairness in terms of how the assessment of those victims are being judged as to whether or not they're a victim of that crime? 
for businesses, how are they responding or not responding to the issues of forced labor within their supply chains? Are they complying with the legislation? And in an increasing environment of more and more legislation, are they doing the things that they should be doing? And that role, not only to scrutinize, but to encourage best practice, to encourage collaboration, because the issue is so complex, it sits across so many areas of society that the independent anti-slavery commissioner role was to bring together those different sectors of society in order to tackle the problem. That's now not happening. That's the UK picture. How does that compare to what's going on elsewhere in the world? When you and I have talked in the past, we've talked about the growing level of legislation around the globe, that that is still happening. Obviously, we've seen the EU mandatory human rights due diligence and quasi-tariff act come into effect. We've seen in the US the Uyghur Forced Labour Act. We've seen Germany, Netherlands, Norway legislate. We've seen Australia said we're going to upgrade our legislation. Legislation is only going in one direction. It, It is increasing. Really to say to business, and I think this has come as a result of pressures of consumers and investors, which is there are ethics around how you do business. We will legislate in order for business to know this is how we want you to carry out your business. In order that workers in particular are not being exploited in that whole process. So I think what we're seeing globally is this uptick in legislation and increasingly more and more focus on this, whether it's from the institutional investors or from governments or from businesses themselves saying, actually, this really matters for our long-term sustainability and profitability. We need to do this. Is there a danger the hard-fought-for wins that we've had in the never-ending campaign to protect migrants, whether they're refugees or migrant workers, are too easily lost, either as a result of unintended consequences of actions or simply bad government? Are you concerned about that? I am concerned. From a UK perspective, the advances that were made around the Modern Slavery Act had cross-party support. Everybody could sign up to, we think slavery is a dreadful idea. And I think, you know, if you ask any politician of whatever hue and persuasion, they would still say that. I think what we're at at the moment, and I think this isn't just peculiar to the UK, I think it is part of popularism and entrenched nationalism, is this conflation of issues. You know, what is human trafficking? What is smuggling? What is migration? What's a refugee? What's asylum? And so the approach is saying it's all the same when it isn't. Migration is legal and it's a necessary part of living in the global economy. In the UK, there was a report that just came out this week saying there are at least 330,000 people that have left as a result of Brexit that haven't been replaced by people coming from elsewhere, which leads to people shortages that leads to the economic problems that businesses are facing. Then there's this conflation of what is smuggling, what is human trafficking. And and what we're seeing in the small boats crossings, both into Europe, but also across the channel, is smuggling, where you're paying someone to get you illegally across an international border. When these terms become interchangeable, then it's very easy to say, okay, well, we're going to clamp down on this. It's not a direct response to a defined problem. It's applied carte blanche. And that means that there are casualties in that whole process, whether it's modern slavery victims, whether it's, it's migrants whether it's people that are seeking asylum and refugee status. And so I think there needs to be an honesty about what is going on, that there is deliberate policy decisions being made by governments around the globe to conflate these issues. And actually, we need to take a step back and say, okay, this is what this is. This is what that is. They're separate. They're different. They are connected. We need to dial down the hostile environment. And we need to have an honest conversation about, say, in the UK, we need a level of migratory workforce in order for business to function. The same is true in the EU and and everywhere else. So let's have a conversation about how we address that problem. 
We also have a problem around modern slavery. So let's have an honest conversation about how we deal with that, how we identify and support and get victims out of that situation. And we have an issue with smuggling and how do we tackle that? And they are different and they need different tools in order to tackle them. As you highlighted, there has been a proliferation of new legislation around these areas. UK Modern Slavery Act was one of the first. Other similar pieces of legislation have emerged. Do you think that there's a need to reset in terms of the sort of legislation that can help, particularly around differentiating between modern slavery, forced forced labour and the necessary migration required for functioning economies? Yeah, and I think what we are now calling for, and I think what the sector is calling for, is to say, how do we define in legislation the things so that forced labour, and primarily when you're talking to businesses, it is about forced labour exploitation within the supply chains that that you're trying to tackle. So we would say you need three pieces, a tripartite bit of legislation. So one is transparency in supply chains, which is a annual this is what we're doing. Here's a disclosure of what we are doing as a company to tackle modern slavery. In the UK context, and I know the New Zealand government is also thinking about this in terms of its Modern Slavery Act, within that reporting, we would say we need to upgrade to say, report all incidents of modern slavery found or explain why zero. Because then a company has got to tell you what it is doing and why it is finding or not finding what it's doing. The second thing we need is managing human rights due diligence. The EU have done, and lots of UK businesses and businesses outside of the EU will be caught by this legislation anyway. So you need to create, certainly at the UK level, parity in order to show a level playing field for UK businesses. But that is saying that human rights due diligence is critically important all the way down the supply chain. And for those businesses at the top of the supply chain, they do have a responsibility to know what is going on in their supply chains that the principles of decent work are being (laughs) followed and adhered to within the supply chains, and that there's an element of due diligence, that you are actually doing something to ensure that human rights are being adhered to. And then the third bit of the legislation is what we would say is, is Tariff Act, a la the US, which is saying where goods are identified as being manufactured by forced labor, that those goods are not allowed into the marketplace. So not just the UK or the EU or the US, but globally, you cannot sell goods that are tainted by forced labor. That bit is important because it gives real focus to business, because if you can't get your goods to market, you can't sell, your business is going to go out of business pretty quickly. By having those three bits of legislation, you create the environment for good business to thrive. The bit that you don't legislate, and I think this is where the investors have a crucial role, is you invest in those businesses that can demonstrate that they are adhering not only just to the ILO principles of decent work, but are really pressing into the S of the ESG. The terms and conditions in which people work and how goods are manufactured and deployed really, really matters. There is a caveat to all of that, which is creating those laws is the easy bit. Enforcing those laws is the difficult bit. We need to look to the US, which has been active in enforcing withhold and release orders through the Tariff Act, and has been active with the Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act as well. But if we look at the UK and look at transparency in supply chains, the legislation affects about circa 19,000 UK businesses and in excess of 100,000 international businesses. But even of those 19,000, we're still about five or 6,000 businesses that have never produced a statement. 
Now, within Section 54, the Home Secretary can take any of those businesses to court and force them to produce a statement. That's never happened in the intervening seven or eight years since that act came in. I think you would have seen a step change if there was a FTSE 100 or 250 company that had been taken to court by the British government to say, you must produce this statement, because that would have sent a message to businesses saying this really matters. Legislate well, but then enforce the legislation, and that creates the environment for good businesses to thrive. This is all important because migrant workers remain highly vulnerable to exploitation. Can you give us a quick reminder of the main points of risk? I think one that we see around the globe still is around recruitment fees. So you arrive at that job when you're already in debt. And then often what happens with that is then what you thought was a £40 coach ticket actually turns into a £400 charge as well. So you're in further debt then the work that you thought you were coming to isn't there. And we've seen this recently through the seasonal uh, visa worker scheme. But that is a pattern that occurs around the globe. And so the debt builds and therefore that person's vulnerability to exploitation increases. What we then see, you know, when it tips into full on exploitation is complete control of that person. That could be control of their bank accounts, their movements. It often presents as the absence of normal within the work environment so that people don't engage. They're unwilling to engage with you. They're fearful. They they appear to be under the control of somebody else. So there's lots of little sort of tells that are going on the whole time. This point of the absence of normal also is, it's like those water cooler moments. You know, what did you do at the weekend? That There's nothing that's forthcoming or there's no social interaction that takes place because the person is completely isolated. And those should be warning signs around the whole issue of exploitation. But migrant workers are also vulnerable because they may not have a full grasp of the language. They may be only here for a set period of time and they're trying to earn money in order to support their families at home. And that just creates an environment where the potential for exploitation increases. Collaboration, obviously, involving business, government, civil society, it's important to tackle all these challenges. What does good cooperation look like in your experience? What examples can you give us of where you've seen this actually working properly? So I'll give you a historical one and then I'll give you a contemporary one. If you look back to when the modern slavery bill was being formulated, what you had there was the bringing together of the third sector of business and government and academia and lawyers to say, how are we going to construct some legislation and a strategy that is going to help the UK move forward in tackling these issues. Whilst you had a diverse set of opinion and priorities, you had everybody pulling together and it resulted in not only the Modern Slavery Act, but I think with a level of legitimacy, the the UK government said, you know, we're world leading. It was world leading, certainly, as it came to transparency and supply chains. So I think that's an example of complex problems sits across the whole of society. How do we bring the smarts of everybody to deal with it? In terms of current, and I'll just give two that are in relation to sort of work that Unseen does with businesses. We've worked with Nestle UK in developing in-depth training sessions and equipping their teams with the right resources to both understand the nature of the problem and how it presents, but also how to continuously improve around that, fed by the data that comes from the Modern Slavery Helpline that we run, which says, here are the practices of exploitation that are beginning to appear that we're hearing about. And what Nestle have done is that they innovated, they created some virtual reality training around that and then other training, but they're now pushing that training down their supply chain so that they are understanding their resilience and their exposure to modern slavery is decreased as they ensure others in their supply chains are adhering to the same level of training and know what to do as a result of that. 
at one level, it sounds like common sense, but it's something that businesses really need to take seriously in order to tackle these problems. Another would be some work we've done, say, with, with Achilles, which is with their clients that are struggling to get their heads around what does modern slavery look like, especially within the construction industry? What are the strategies that we need to put in place? Working with them to help businesses devise those strategies but also how to raise awareness within their business, provide the right training, and then establish the policies they need and the procedures they need, and to have a reporting point, i.e. the helpline, at the end of that process if they find it. It gives everybody the confidence to deal with an issue, and it moves them from the, oh, if it happens, then we need to think about it and run around to deal with it, to the, when it happens, and we know what to do, and we deal with it. It's business as usual. The caveat here, we don't want modern slavery as business as usual, but when we do find it, it's business as usual, and we know how to deal with it. And therefore, you have a much better response to the problem. It seems to me that's the result of a mind shift from, well, we don't have modern slavery in our supply chain, to, well, we will have modern slavery in our supply chain, so it's our job to go and find it. Every business should be in that space. We are going to find it. It doesn't matter what type of business you are. You know, if you're an LLP or a finance or manufacturing or retail or agri or whatever, you will find it either in your direct supply chains or how you procure or where you subcontract. Look for it, find it. We've seen in the last five years, the global estimates increased by 10 million for the number of slaves that are in the world. And the biggest proportion is in, within forced labour. Thinking about this coming year, what are you hoping to see change in 2023? I hope in terms of legislation, certainly within the UK, to see a tariff act type legislation come in and mandatory human rights due diligence to come in, I think is incredibly important. Also, we need to see what the government did in the Health Care Act. The NHS cannot procure goods that are tainted by false labour. We need to see that paralleled in the government procurement bill that's currently working its way through Parliament because... And I think this is something that needs to go around the globe. Governments are the biggest procurers in the land. If they're saying we don't want to be tainted by the forced labour issue, that has a huge impact across the whole of the market, not just in the UK, but around the globe. I think increased awareness of what smuggling is and what human trafficking is connected but different, I think is really important because I think it frames both the national debates, but also policy and legislation responses around that. What I'm hoping to see is what is the impact as the EU mandatory human rights and due diligence legislation rolls out and the Tariff Act, and I think increasingly the impact of the German legislation around due diligence as well will have a noticeable effect. And my final, final wish is that somebody out there, smarter than you and me, Ian, can come up with metrics for the S of ESG. Well, if anyone's out there listening, do get in touch and do all right. We're very happy to help you bring those together. Thanks very much, Andrew. Great to talk with you as ever. And thanks for your thoughts on what to look for across 2023. Good to talk to you, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. And don't forget to register now for the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade event in London on the 29th and 30th of March to take advantage of the £200 discount on passes that expires on Friday 10th of February. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh. And until next week, goodbye. Thank you.